Sattara, I thought, this is the very opposite of what I would like my yeshiva to be. So, I'm just mentioning that Derefaga, by the way. Somebody had mentioned to me that perhaps Kush would be the best yeshiva for me. South Africans who were studying in Israel at the time, and I'd come from South Africa, uh, within the religious Zionist world, went to Canada. And uh, at that time, there were no South Africans in Kush. Kush had started in 1969, first in Paris, London, at Moussa This was 1976. The Beit Midrash was still at the bottom uh, of the hills where the Summit offices now are. In 1976, the new Beit Midrash was still under construction. And I came to Kush to spend the day there, to taste it. I don't know what the occasion was, but there was an event in the Chadarokel, and Rabbi Lichtenstein spoke at it. And during his sikha, he mentioned, somebody told me about a Dvar Torah of Parshat now this was Elul, the Dvar Torah of in which it had been suggested that a Yeshiva equals Tevanot, and he repeats this Dvar Torah. And then he said, this is exactly what a Yeshiva is not. Chas Shalom that we can describe the world out there as being a place of outright tumour with the implications, chas v'shalom, that it's worthy of destruction. Chas v'shalom, that the yeshiva should be a place that is detached from civilization. Rather than the yeshiva needs to be in the heart of our world. We need to study seriously, but at the same time we need to be in touch, we need to engage. And people from outside society should feel comfortable to come within the walls of the yeshiva. Men, and believe it or not, women as well. Which in some yeshivot is an impossibility that, uh, that you might behold. And the more he was speaking, the more I was thinking to myself, Baruch Hashem, I have arrived home. But I hadn't arrived home yet because I first had to have a prayer with Rabbi <laughs> And uh, I recall it well, it was on the Sefesh word which at the time I was studying. And... Uh, Baruch Hashem, I was accepted into the Shiva and I commenced my studies immediately after Sukkot of that year. And I, for two years, studied in Rav Aaron's Shior, and it was an enormous Sukkot. I owe to him my own Derek in Talmudic study, the Briska Shita. What I didn't know at the time was that through him, I was studying a way to approach all dilemmas and challenges in life. And this is how I operate to this day and encourage others to operate. To be fair-minded, to try one's best to be objective, even when emotion is running high. To evaluate a situation based on the various options that face you. To weigh up each option, the brisk shita, and uh, to work out what is the best way forward based on rational consideration. And as a result, I often hop back to those days sitting, sitting in his class when I'm confronted with testing situations. Baruch Hashem, I learned a lot from him in terms of substance and Talmudic study. Through his Sikhot, particularly his Sikhot on the Perush HaRamban, Torah, and many other Sikhot. But most of all, I learned Behali just by watching the man. You know, when it comes to the fact that we follow Hillel and not Shammai, of course we are aware of the difference she talked of Hillel and Shammai. One was made for the other was Mahmoud in a general sense. 
But the Talmud tells us that most of all, we follow Hillel because he was an outstanding role model. He was an ish tested. He was a person whose patience was tested and yet he was there for everyone. And so too with Rav Aram. He was a man who was naturally my Rav because of the person he was. And when you're studying in Yeshiva, it's a very close, small world. You look at everything under a microscope. And when you view your Rav and Roy Rashi Shiva, they're under that microscope. And you tend to notice everything, or everything that you're able to notice. And under that microscopic study, Rav Aaron was just the most remarkable, supernatural person for me. I don't believe I'll ever come across a genius in any way close to the genius that he was. And at the same time, he was simply unlovely Nikolaidam. Genuinely modest. But just like Moshe Rabbeinu who was unlovely Nikolaidam, when it came to issues on which he passionately felt that he needed to make a stand, this shy man became a roaring lion, crying out about what he believed to be unjust, what he believed to be wrong, and being a leader from the front on many a controversial issue. Through my days in Yeshiva, I consulted with him a lot. And then from time to time after I left the Yeshiva, I would consult with him. And most recently, at a time when I was in a shortlist to become chief rabbi, and I thought it might be possible, if not probable, on a visit to Israel, I arranged to meet him. At that time, his health was somewhat failing. But I had a very precious 90 minutes with him. And uh, I will always remember that very, very precious time. And like always, when you were with him, you were exclusively the only thing in his thoughts. He was a man of deep integrity. And that shone through when I put to him certain dilemmas. I had situations. He didn't have time for politics within the world of the rabbinate and within religious life. He detested those who dragged our world into Chilo Hashem's situation. And he stood up to be counted when such situations arose. And I will always have Akarat talk to him for the guidance that he gave me, certain issues which now are playing out in my own Rabbanut. And uh, not only the specific guidance he gave, but also his derech to try to understand the issue, to be as open-minded and as fair-minded as possible, and to be there to give genuine advice, and at the same time, not to give advice with a tone of, I'm your Rebbe, this is what you must do, but rather, this is what I think should be the situation. A real outstanding gadol in every possible sense of the word. I got to know that Rav Aaron was not just a man with an incredible head. In the yeshiva at the time, people would say, with regard to the yeshiva, Rav Amital Zatzal was the heart of the yeshiva, Rav Aaron Zatzal was the head of the yeshiva. But actually, Rav Amital was an incredible gaon. And Rav Lichtenstein was an amazing man of heart. And the more you got to know him, the more you appreciated that. <coughs> Great passion, wonderful emotion, a man of deep feeling. So, for example, I, I recall a sikha that he once gave on a Friday night. He was troubled by the fact that Zmirot on the Shabbos table did not have sufficient ruach, according to his liking. 
So this is what he said. He said that Yeshiva Sakata was looking for a Rosh Yeshiva and they wanted to appoint him. He visited Israel, Rabbi Mittal spoke to him and wanted him to come to Haritzion, to the Gush. And he needed to weigh up which Yeshiva he would decide to be the Rosh Yeshiva of. He said, I spent a Shabbat at Gush, the Zmirot, at the Shabbat's table, were just incredible. That's why I decided to come to this Yeshiva, because of the Ruach here. Something which possibly is not well known. I was zokhet to hear that sikhah is and for him to reveal these facts. And certainly, there was a man of incredible mind, but who had a wonderful heart. Somebody who felt Ruach, and who wanted us to enjoy the Ruchaniyot of the Yeshiva together with the power of study and of learning. So, on his demise, there are so many things which we can learn, and what I find to be so precious is the extent of his mark and his impact right around the Jewish world. Wherever I am, I come across people who hold him up as being their rabb, their leader, somebody who is an outstanding role model in every possible way. Coming back to Sefer Breshit, rather than Parshat Noach being for me an example of how to lead our lives, I believe that the most predominant text that we should be following is those passages relating to Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef is the only person called by Chazal HaTzadik. Yes, Noachish Tzadik, Yom and others, but called by Chazal Tzadik, <coughs> only Yosef. And interestingly enough, Yosef was more than anyone of the predominant characters of Chumash, a person who engaged with the outside world, who was a player within that outside world, in fact, who came to be at the top of the outside world. Why Dafka was he Hatzadik? Because of his background in learning, the fact that he had grown up in his father's house, that to this day we consider what was the final teaching, Egla, Rufa, etc., etc. His whole life was centered around learning, and thanks to the learning and the personal example that he had from his father, he was able in testing times in the outside world to be a shining example to bring the brilliance and the value of his learning to impact positively on the world and not for the opposite to occur. That was the way of Rav Arundh. Somebody who inspired all of us to be imbued with learning, to appreciate the value of learning, that every single second counts, and uh, it just liked waste of any kind, and at the same time wanted people through their learning to be engaged with the world in order that we should be, in whatever capacity we undertake in our professional lives and careers, an outstanding model for others to follow throughout Torah, impacting positively on others. My concluding thought relates to something which I learned about him in his death. So last year, I rushed to be at his Levaya, which I was privileged to be at, and I think the Levaya and the Yeshiva send out a very strong statement. The Levaya of a Rosh Yeshiva, who gives the Hespedin? And if there are seven or eight Hespedin, you would expect other Rosh Yeshiva, Gidolei Hador, the people who gave the Hespedin <coughs> were his children. And they spoke about him as a father, as a family man. And that was so powerful for me. 
because what he taught was that family comes first. And my images of him would always be of himself and Rabbi and the family sitting around the table at the top while there were the rows of tables for Shabbat meals. During my two years at the yeshiva, we stepped up standards for the opening of the new Beit Midrash. And uh, I think it was his son Mayer's bar mitzvah that we celebrated at that time. And his father, Rob Wittgenstein from Paris, was there and gave a wonderful Torah, which I recall very vividly. And it was Rob Aaron, the family man. You know, one of the whole world talks about his degree Torah and his this and his that. At the end of the day, what mattered most to him was his mishpacha. What an important message that is for all of us, regardless of what we do in life and how noble a task we might have out in public life. What matters most of all is what kind of a husband we are, what kind of a father, what kind of a spouse, what kind of a grandfather, child, sibling. Our families do come first. And through our families, we aspire to have an even deeper impact on our surroundings. (coughs) So uh, thank you for enabling me to offer these brief thoughts of a man who I have been privileged to know, who made a deep impact on my life, and through whose support, I hope, I will always, together with so many others, including ourselves and thousands around the world, to spread his Torah and to spread his goodness, the greatness of his mind and the greatness of his heart through this incredible person that we were soccer to know, to revere, to love, and to never to forget. He is the Kodala. Thanks on behalf of everybody, uh, to the Chief Rabbi for taking the time uh, to be with us uh, this evening and uh, inspiring us with those uh, very heartfelt uh, words. In my task to introduce our big in Ramya Yeshiva, you're not here to listen to me. I'm here to hear how big, but I just want to share with you one quick story. I'm the smallest of all, because they're not certain. And Zachiti, I had a merit of learning in the Shiva of Rav Lichtenstein for three years, during my seven years of the Shiva. And, and he made me who I am. There's no doubt, in my mind, I get very emotional because the Ratshamayim, the Derek in Rabbanut, the Derek in learning of Halakha, the Derek in learning of Gomorrah, the Derek in learning of Ashkofa, is certainly, certainly Shayach completely inside the him. And when I came to the Yeshiva, I'm just going to quickly tell you a, just one story that I think embodies. And I remembered it last night. The Rabbi Mormi, we finished Davin in Shul, we Shabbat, we went out to make Kiddush Levana. And I remember that uh, as a young Bakul, I was not going to go to Yeshivat Halsinim. I was going to attend a Haredi Yeshiva because I come from a Hamur Haredi background. But a friend of mine was studying at Yeshivat Halsinim, he's slightly older than I, and I went for Shavuot to Yeshiva. And I was very inspired, and I remember the Shirim. Uh, that were given and they were very inspiring but after Shavuot there was Kiddush Levanah and Rav Lichtenstein everyone went out to make Kiddush Levanah outside Rav Lichtenstein turned to me and he turned around and he said Shalom Aleichem and he turned around to me and he said Shalom Aleichem and I took him back and I said Aleichem Shalom 
And uh, afterwards, someone came up to me and said, Wow, that's amazing. Years later, Mamash, years later, we're talking about that must have been in 1991. In 1996, I came to the love to the Rosh to ask for a recommendation. I was starting to look for positions. I wanted a recommendation. And he wrote me the most beautiful recommendation. I'm sure, you know, he was such a... He always saw the good in everything. And uh, only wrote good things. And he wrote the most beautiful, uh, uh, really... I think probably I only got the job because of that recommendation. And he signed at the bottom, Aaron Lichtenstein, and in brackets, Rosh Hashimah. It's handwritten. At the bottom, very far down, shows his that, you know, his humility. And he gave it to me, and he handed it to me, and he said to me the following thing. He said to me, we've come a long way from that first show in Malaysia. And I was astounded, because people thought that there was a type of impression that perhaps I didn't notice things like that. It's just not true. He did notice. He noticed every detail. He noticed everything. He knew exactly what I was up to throughout all the years of Yeshiva. Um, and that touched me more than anything. And I remember at that time also we were already married and you know, and, uh, maybe just to shoot uh, one more story very briefly. <laughs> very, very briefly. <laughs> when, you know, this partnership between our Lichtenstein and Arav Amital was incredible. And we, Baruch Hashem, we were going to get married. We were very young. We were 19. And uh, we decided, we wanted, I wanted to discuss, you know, what does the Yeshiva Bacha do when you, you know, you got to discuss it with your Rosh Hashim. So, uh, I'll be remembered. Let me remember. I went to. Uh, <laughs> I went and I sat down with Rabbi Lichtenstein and I pulled my heart out and I said, "Listen, I'm 19 and we want to get married." And he looks at me incredulously. That I would have been incredulous. And he said to me, "I don't understand these things. Go speak to Rabbi Lichtenstein." <laughs> <laughs> And I went to Rav Amital and Baruch Hashem got married and it was the year, <laughs> it was the year that Rav uh, Amital encouraged it and it was the year during which Rav uh, Soloveitchik was Niftal and he was a Navel, he conducted himself as a Navel in every way and he, he, came to, he came to me, asked me to come to him, he sent a, a message, please to see the Rosh Hashiva, I came to him, you know, what did I do wrong? And he said to me, no, I'm not able to be at the, the Khatima because I'm another, I wanted to wish you a Mazarfi. And I thought that, you know, just that attention to detail, he didn't have to do that. The fact that he did it, everything about him was in the context of an Evedashem. Yirachamayim, I learned from Avrikhtishtim, in every way. And his... Even in Rabbanut, there have been things that I have faced, challenges that I have faced. How do I approach? What do I do? Especially as a modern Orthodox Rabban. And his absolute dedication and clarity in Messiah was unquestionable. And he insisted on, for what he's telling you, clarity in Messiah, clarity in observance, and clarity and commitment to turn. And that's something that the whole Yeshiva embodied. And Baruch Hashem, 
tonight we have with us Arab Rimon and Arab Big. And Arab Big uh, is a long time Raman Yeshiva, and he can tell you much more than I can. And I'm quite excited to hear what Arab Big, an enormous Tamukhochen, Talmud of Arab Rikhmishkin, in every way, uh, has to tell us. Arab Big, it's an honor to please have you with us. The basic structure of what I wanted to say has just been destroyed. I'll explain why. I'll do it anyway. It's too late to change. There's a habit which has been based in a number of the stories called Zidin, and in many other uh, circumstances in Spain and in that the stories of the incidents told have a common form. Despite what you might have thought about the Lutherstein in honor of Lutherstein greatness in A, B, and C, he was amazingly enough also good in something else. And frankly, I have another story which go along the same path. But every time these stories are told, I said, and I happen to hear this evening as well, I'm saying, oh, it's very true. It's And this is much because I know that it is. And I'm going to try to explain. In some way, why doesn't surprise me? The fact that we normally think that if you're a great intellectual, you're incapable of having an emotional experience and an understanding and appreciation of something, I understand why that's surprising to us. First place, as long as I know the different thing, it wasn't. Although, that was, it was, it was a certain wholeness. So none of these stories surprised me. I have to say the first story you told me surprised me. <laughs> and therefore, that goes, that goes my vote about the uniqueness. In fact, he told you that he never said Shabbalechim to you at Kirish Lepana. I don't know where that comes from. I guess I check one out. You've, you've knocked me off. <laughs> okay? And I, I have a purpose in what I, in what I wanted to It's normal and it's easy to do for the Lippenstein to, to speak about how unusually, how, how unusual a person he was, what an elderly was. It's not hard to do. I can do it relatively easily. And I don't want to do it. Because, aside from the fact <coughs> that he was generally a little bizarre, and as you know, and I say this not out of uh, cynicism, but as you know, though he saw the time doesn't do. Anyone who has a beard longer than mine has probably called a brother and son. Many years ago in Yeshiva, and we, we noticed boys would get married, and they asked about Yeshiva to come to the wedding. Uh, but say at the time, we stopped afterwards, it was during the, the period after uh, 10 years or so after Mokhana uh, Jonathan put in, the price of gasoline had gone up by. Ten times as much after the Arab boycott and the invasion uh, of OPEC. Let's say that it happened when we went to a wedding before that office. In order to in order to save energy, in order to save gas on And we noticed that the boys in Shiva didn't think that they should send a uh, a car or arrange for a taxi to pick them up. It was obvious that if some uh rather from some place invited to his wedding, they would send a uh, entire cavalcade to accompany him. This is a little thing, and he would come. We were talking about this once, I spoke with this throughout the morning, and we realized the reason was, now I'm maybe a little bit cynical, the reason was because he didn't have a beard. 
No, it's today or a diamond doesn't. So it is true. Luchasi was yud, a god of Yisrael. And I say that not merely because I'm a Talmud, not merely because if he's a god of Yisrael, and I was up to learn in Yeshiva and teaching Yeshiva, which I god of Yisrael, appreciate very much. But because it's really true and we forget it. And even I forget it sometimes. You never feel So you put him as being a very learned person. But he was a god of Yisrael, just like more so and most of the people who were running around, some of the reasons for Shabbat Shabbat, which I'll try to explain. But, here's the but, I don't want to talk about that so much. Honestly, some of the more amazing things that I learned from him were things which everybody in the room can do. And we don't do. And if I would tell you what a god of his father was, he would say, that's nice, good to hear about God of and I go back to my, not a god of his father, so I go back to my normal life, and none of those stories that he do. So if I told you, as we know, it was important that you mentioned that man who shas, hope you appreciated that and you admire for that. That doesn't in any way, you know you're not as talented or as bright or even have a good memory as the looking scene has. And therefore you say, that's nice to hear, doesn't affect me. And here's Hashem, I hope to someday know uh, six or seven Mishnayot by heart and I will have done how I've done mine. But nonetheless, and I think it's not just that I could do this, Many of the things which, which I learned from the this thing, and I'll have to learn in the future, were really not that difficult at all. And they didn't arise in an obvious manner from his unusual and extraordinary, extraordinary qualities. So I'd like to talk about a few of, few of those things, some of them were in fact actually mentioned. But the combinations are, are they're extraordinary and yet, and yet simple. My opening comment is as follows. Rabbi Lachensin had basically, aside from his talents in certain areas, perhaps what are more extraordinary, he had one basic desire, aim, goal, which unified everything. He wished to be Obedashem. And it was last week, Monday, was the outside, and Tuesday morning, and Zariyah Kevin on the Matsega, the basic class, it has his name, and then it says two words. It says, Obed Hashem. The habit would be, tell your God, you write as much as you can. And usually, once the customer do it, but they shake it over the names. And they have a short name, four lines, but they, they even gave up on the four lines. It says, Obed Hashem. And why is that important? Because, Nobody in the room can say that I can't be Obed Hashem. To say that really shouldn't, really shouldn't be in this room. I think Obed Hashem is not included in our party, not included in Kaurisan. Everyone can be and should be and desires to be Obed Hashem. I don't think Obed Hashem will want to be anything else. The things that he did before, things that he did in actuality, simply arose from the fact that he measured what he was doing by saying, is this part of my Obed Hashem? Or is it not my part of Hashem? Now, the fact that he had amazing talent in certain areas would, uh, would, would obligate him perhaps more because he knew that he could know all the shas. So then he knew that the Rabbi Hashem had to learn all the shas. You don't think you can know all the shas. So then what? It won't happen. But then the other things he did, simple things, part of the story said, despite that he was a brother, he did simple things. But he wasn't despite the fact he was a brother, he did simple things. The simple things were the same about the Hashem as the other things he did. I'll give an example that was mentioned here. It was mentioned in the movie. I'm not sure everybody caught. 
Rami and I was talking, he said, oh, it's last time that he went to Wales, he danced at the wedding. Anybody who that danced at the wedding? I was, all my life I've been younger than Rami. <laughs> 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 you know, any place I went with him at a wedding, so he was 17 years old. The man went to weddings, and as long as the band played, he danced. None of us had the chutz to ask him why. None of us could do that. You dance a little bit. And you get tired. You go to each other. You make friends. Whatever goes up, you need to see people. If they were dancing, he was dancing. But if this was, if this was a traditional discussion about all of these songs, I'd say, well, it's a Gemara. It says, Kol HaOchel, Kmitz, Yudas HaShal Chasa, Ve'yom, Misalcha, Over, Kmitz, Kmitz, And so he was afraid, and he was a big machmus, who thought maybe he wasn't the Sameach. He wasn't making the 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 chassan as happy as could be. I'm not denying that. That could be that that was true. It could be that he had that cheshbon. I don't think so. He was cheshbon like that. He didn't come to the wedding. Shmuz, Shmuz didn't come to other places. He came to the wedding to celebrate the wedding. That's what we celebrate weddings by dancing. Actually, know that he ate too. He, didn't, uh, he wasn't necessary. He ate very well at the wedding. Uh, but if people are dancing, why shouldn't he be dancing? And this got to a point when he was somewhat older. But I would stop dancing because I was too old to keep dancing. And the man kept dancing until the band stopped. The band stopped. He went and he sat down and he spoke. So that's and one of the story that looks like the the the, uh, the 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 focus that I mentioned. Despite the fact that he knew Shas and he was speaking about it all the time, he was also dancing when he danced a lot. But the word despite there, I never understood it. Despite as soon as I saw it, I said, no, it's, it's a little bit unusual. But it's not unusual for him. It wasn't unusual. Of course, he goes away and he does it 100%. One thing that he needs to emphasize in Muslim, everybody would hear this from him, but he knows to what extent. He said, no matter what you do, you have to do it the best. That's classicness. So you learn to learn the best, but someone would go to university and expect them to do the best. And it's true, somebody went to play basketball, he expected them to do the best. That's a famous story. Probably many of you have heard it. The time that uh, this was a long time ago, he was still in New York, where he stopped the game and he was playing in the middle. He turned to a person on his own team and said, you know, the way you play is immoral. <laughs> the reason was because <laughs> anyone who's played basketball knows the Sananaham, and the boy liked to play offense. Defense was not one of the things that he thought he should uh, uh, put in too much energy. Even in offense, he liked to shoot. Uh, the best was that you have to suffer in order to eventually the ball should come to you and you can have, you can have your time. But he thought if you play, they like, have to play all out. You play all out, it's really dangerous to let people on the court. Whatever you do, you have to do with, with 100%. That was the same reason why he danced the wedding. And it was only because, it wasn't because he read some, some self uh, help uh, book that described the importance of being lettuce. And it was part of the position. But that was Bechod Racheha Ba'ein. And it took me a while until I understood it. Once I understood that, I more or less, except for your story, stopped being amazed by any story that was being told. Usually I could predict the story, and when I couldn't predict it, so the evidence said, oh, okay, that makes sense. But that's, that's what he did all the time. That midah is a midah that I don't see how any one of us can possibly exempt ourselves from doing. It will be applied on a different level in each person's circumstances, but there's... Once you realize that that's the way you should do it, there's no way to exempt yourself from that sort of thing. And the time, I'm going to tell a story now, which, so he wouldn't mind, so I'm going to tell him. It might, it will uh, be surprising to some people who are coming in. Uh, about 20 years ago, I think it was, 
you know, anyone who's read a sad story once, he'll cry. You read it the second time, we're cynical, not cynical, we're, we're adult enough, we're, we're uh, worldly enough, we're intellectual enough to understand that, okay, now you take a step back and you get a, get a goal. You wanted to read it, please tell me that they should understand the very important point that was being told there. It was very important to read it. And this was the second time. You're supposed to get over it the second time. It was as though it was before the first time. In, in a similar vein, he once uh, said to us that he envies us. This is extraordinary. Sometimes the stories, the stories are told about Rosh Hashanah. This one was really extraordinary. He said he envies us. It was before Rosh Hashanah. And um, he said, uh, you know, you have an opportunity to read Paradise Lost and still and still be affected by it when you've read it 37 times and you can still read some of this effects. He meant that we'll, I'm only reading it five or six we have only read it the fifth time the sixth time so we can still really get into the passionate uh, uh, beautiful pictures of the glory of God and the, the dangers of hell etc the clash of titans I have to admit that despite the recommendation by the name of Talmud still he assumed I read it for the fifth time and I was still able to really get into it but then I said 37 times so he was camping he began to lose the first 36 times he was as moved as much as the first time, the first time, the first time he met. Sensitivity isn't only emotional sensitivity to, to ethical problems. It involves, it involves a lot of other things. His, his, his ability to remain simple, which I'm saying simple, any of us can do because it's a despite point of view. Despite being a gadol, he was interested in simple things, as any one of us should be, should be interested. It relates to... It relates to sometimes to halakha, sometimes to personal problems. I want to speak to Mark. I didn't, uh, I'm sure everyone has many more stories than I do. I didn't consult him often about uh, problems that I have. Okay, why did I didn't? One time I went to speak to him about choosing the Yeshiva High School for my son. My son was problematic, his son was usually young. And uh, the question was uh, to, to shoot higher than him or to shoot lower than him. And the problem was involved. And I mentioned I had an opportunity to use the word protection. To get him into a very, very good Shiva high school, but, uh, and he sat there and he said to me something which I wouldn't have thought of. I wouldn't have thought of because I was a father and I had ambitions, among other things, lost ambitions. He said, You know, you have to be very careful. And that thing which he looked in his own group and who got Hashem were very talented. He said, You have to be very careful not to put somebody into a situation who will be frustrated by his inability to be on the level that's demanded in that, in that, in that situation. It's a simple point. Any educated people, perhaps. But he, he really didn't deal with those kind of children. His own children, his yeshiva, is all superior people. And I said, my son has problems, educational problems, and should he therefore go to a place like yeshiva that I suggested, I have to tell you the truth now. I'm not a good one. He told me that, and I did it anyway. I'm happy I did it, I was right. <laughs> but his, his advice was simply that he was able to think on the level of the person in front of him or of the person's son in front of him. It was the most natural thing in the world to do that. It involves a certain huge wideness of perspective. Most of us, anyone, can be a god of you. The narrow world is the dominant. And if you're one of us, so your narrow world is your narrow world. This world was not narrow in, this, in any sense. The whole panoply of human existence, I think you claim because of religion, you read that for open these kinds of things. It was open to him without even thinking. Case A, and he identified with case A. It had to do with the things of Allah. I once went to speak to him. I have a theory which I've been developing for some 20, 30 years concerning, and I can describe it now. 
concerning um, uh, reproductive technology. In the last uh, 30 years, it's been tremendous, uh, amazing, incredible revolution. It's unimaginable. It's unimaginable enough because nothing comes out to look for to find out what a radical force should do. That's what it means by, by revolution. The idea that you can produce children through means that literally do not help people, children themselves, and test etc. Uh, I have a negative opinion which I have tried to develop, but I've known you on the cover. This is how you can imagine. It's not going to be a look. So it's a little, I've got a little hashkata. I went to talk to him, and so I wanted to convince him. And so he, I don't know if he really could. He said, oh, yeah, that could be, that could be. He said, but it's so what? How can you tell what you're claiming? How could you possibly tell it to a couple? If I had a Gumbala that said it's Asa, so you tell it to a couple, they would settle. That's okay. Halacha is halacha. But I should come with my philosophic feelings about the importance of the personal aspect of producing human life in a family. I would say that to a couple that has no children. He said, well, how could you even imagine you could say something like that? Now, this is a good despite story. Here's a man whom halacha, strict halacha, was the be-all, end-all, beginning-all of everything. But when you have to apply it to people, you have to apply it to people. And, and so... Yeah, if it's true, it's true, and, and he didn't. He really, uh, he wasn't the kind of person who would bend what he thought was clearly true when somebody cried. That that kind of story is not true. But to come with theories of philosophy as convinced that they might be, I'm not really convinced. But he said, even if I was convinced, there's no way that you can hold that on somebody who is not interested in philosophy, but interested in his own personal suffering. What's the what's the connection? And that's the explanation why. He, he, again, he disagreed, but in my Hesper he gave to Shlomo he mentioned as an example of Shlomo on hearing it. And he said that he's not sure it's correct. He's not sure that it is what we're hearing it on Shabbos. He's basically using a microphone, you're not talking into a microphone, but you're combining a microphone with somebody else. But when he went to speak to Shlomo Zaman about it, Shlomo said, you think we can leave people for 24 hours in darkness and silence, how can you how can you allow that? We're going to have to find a way to be mathematical. You cannot you cannot leave somebody in deafness for twenty four hours. So Lilasin told this story as part of the Shemach for Rashlama Zalman, although I think he might have been mentioned in the Hesper, I sure we know it's true, that he didn't necessarily agree with the Psalm. He might have even agreed to apply the consideration, but he tremendously admired the consideration, and that's why the Shlomo Zaman was the premier posseh in Eretz Israel. I will not mention the people who thought of Matthew Ripsock in Eretz Israel, but they didn't have the same, the same meter in, in, any, in any sense. And, and a personal story, which I would know, again, it's something which didn't amaze me, it amazed others, and I don't know how amazing it is. I, I got so used to the fact that he, he does things like this. Let's go to a wedding, close friend of mine, and my Mother-in-law at the time was uh, 99 years old. Not she died at 103. She was 99 years old. Uh, simple woman, not uh, not a great intellectual. She had nothing, she had nothing to talk about. She mm-hmm. mm-hmm. had nothing to talk about once or twice. And I asked. She really had to stop for the last 15 years of her life. And this was why she was invited as well, because she knew the family had one And uh, he was invited because she was coming in the And there was dancing. So people got up to dance. I got to dance, my wife got to dance. My mother-in-law at 99 had stopped dancing. And, and she was sitting at the table. We came back, we didn't see him sitting with this woman discussing, I had no idea what. I mean, you know, he 
I can imagine a few things she had a very interesting life she was the only person I know of even close to that age who was born in America even I know that she was born in Europe she was born in America on a farm so you can ask interesting questions and he said he's chatting a lot because frankly the next oldest person in the room was 25 years younger than her <laughs> and I don't hear about my son but it wasn't you know, he went to talk to he found what to talk to about, talk to her about in his wide major experience and he, he found something and despite despite here again just despite the fact that he was an intellectual he discussed philosophy and halacha so the time I know he discussed uh, her grandchildren her great grandchildren she had great great grandchildren and uh, so I, I thought it was you know, he was obvious but uh, the boy was there I mean, did you see what's happening? so again why did they this story? There's nobody in this room who is incapable, who would need a tremendous change in his abilities, his his spiritual abilities, to know that uh, when you see an old lady alone, you might walk over and uh, stay alone and ask how she's enjoying the wind. It's, it's an act of goddess. It's an act of goddess because he did it every time. He did it automatically. And because that's what Hashem. What's Hashem is to take care of the people around you. I don't tell you how to teach God to talk to people, try to understand life better, A, B, C, D, and F. You need a certain measure, a great measure, a sensitivity. Understand what sensitivity means. You look at each person through their own eyes. You see somebody sitting alone, you look through their eyes, you look at them, they're alone. They're alone. It's something which requires some sort of, uh, some sort of people. And finally, I'd like to mention a few, uh, few points in terms of what in this panoply of activities is important because again the goals are something which we can all which we can all adopt. The first thing that comes to my mind, I spent 50 years more or less the whole time, three years when we were separate, and first came to Israel, four years, spent 50 years with Abraham. First thing, what is the goal? What are we? What is my brother Hashem directed to? First thing is Klausim. Klausim is a very important thing. 40 years with Rosh Hashim Shivat Haaretzim. Anyone who knows the book of Yeshiva, so for that matter, any organization, knows that my organization needs to be developed, which means that someone else's organization is, is a competition about. Recruitment of Talmudim is a fact, is brutal. There are just so many Talmudim out there, and you want to get the best ones for your Yeshiva? It's just financial considerations. Aside from recruitment, there's also you build up Yeshiva because you want Yeshiva to be great, and you have a, it's a real goal. You know Yeshiva does a good thing, so you want it to be great. Rabbulachenstein, despite his belief and his commitment to Yeshiva Tarazel, did not work for Yeshiva Tarazel. I, I didn't even say this, but it's obvious. You know, he worked for Kaiser. He either worked for Hashbach or he worked for Kaiser. He really believed that Yeshiva had to go, but if, if someone else could do it, then he could do it too. And therefore, when one of the Rabbi Yeshiva was called to found another Yeshiva, so the Yeshiva provided with him with all the way before to do that, Yeshiva Tibuchan. Is a Yeshivata, uh, Yeshivat Haaretzion. Despite the fact, I think he knew at the time, and I'm sure we knew two or three years later, they stole some of our best Talmud. Because it was a very Yeshiva. It was a very Yeshiva because they had the advice of Luchastein, and the A, and Nabi Town, and uh, other people in Yeshivat Haaretzion, in, uh, in fact, one of the, one of the most common evils of Jewish communal life is wonderful people, who are committed to a goal and therefore work in a certain organization in a certain context and at some point become more committed to the organization than they are to the original goal. The corporate 
corporate loyalty of good people who are fighting hard. But it doesn't seem because he, he was, his thing was Avodas Hashem, to prevent him from ever coming close to making, to making, to making that mistake. And uh, 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 Daniel uh, actually went to him and asked him, I'm going now to give for the first time, what advice do you have? So he told him, advice, do whatever you want, you know. Think of how to do it. Give us one piece of advice, do not denigrate any other issue. And I, it, it, I think that Shreiba understood that it's us to denigrate to denigrate Torah. I don't think, I don't think it's also reason. I don't think that was the main reason. The event was the job is not to build ourselves on someone else's cheshbon. on that God will figure out how to do it. Your job is to get uh, get a because we have something we have something to we have something to offer. And a second point that was important, and that is the sneeze. Many, many people mentioned Manas. And he was an amazingly modest person. He better things he took about modest to me. I never asked Rabbi Hussein, did you think you are the God? Question which you can't actually ask, right? And, but I am not willing to answer that if I had asked him, he would have said no. Late in his life, he once more or less told me that the answer is yes came in accidentally, he recognized his work. He definitely told me that he was the best comedian in Chaim Berlin by far when he was there. That he told me explicitly one time. Late in his life. And in his early he was the second time. But that doesn't change his modesty. The modesty wasn't that you think this is true or that is true. It's what do you demand for yourself? What do you expect other people to give you? It never occurred to him when the stories are told that somebody would stand and give him a seat. Is there any pain to do that? There's a very famous story I heard from one of my teachers in high school. And everybody stands up, it's very painful. But I know that it would be much more painful if they didn't stand up. For another thing, it wasn't any thought that the top of this does not allow people to stand up. He really would be surprised. No, no deal. It wasn't anything special that he expected, normal, under normal circumstances. And he knew that he was a Rosh Hashim. He knew that he was a Rosh Hashim. He knew that he had certain moments. It just wasn't part of, it wasn't, it was the modesty of expectation, the modesty of demand, the modesty of what's my place. When you walk into a room, I have to tell you an experience. I, I'm nowhere near that level, but I just have done it. I have a different, a different orientation. Being in England, England has a very uh, proper attitude towards the button. I commend you on that attitude. So I'm a guest rabbi here. And I go to Shul, my first day that I'm here, I went to Mincha, in a Shul that doesn't know who I am. On, uh, on the Golders Green uh, Road Avenue, whatever it's called. And someone says, you know, this is Rabbi Vic. And what do Rabbi Vic was? He says, oh, come sit by Mizrah. So I've never in my life sat on Mizrah. And if without any modesty whatsoever, I just don't think I can sit on this. So I said, no. And they questioned me, this and that's why you'd sit in the first round. So that was some sort of aberration of Chabedin, Chasidin, and the state, you have to show all sorts of color. And then I went to Daven in, uh, in a different show. In uh, in there, um, and uh, so the rabbi says to me, I sit where I normally would sit. I sit in the back row, not a much person. I sit in the third row. He says, "Now you have to sit up front." So the rabbi says, "Look, these rabbis, the rabbis handle all the rabbis." I walk in this morning, and it's been less than thirty seconds, and the rabbi comes over to me and says, "Wait, you have to sit in the back row." So it, it is painful for me, but I'm not mad. It's painful for me because I really don't. I mean, it's really silly. Let me see why I should be sitting there. I came to speak about a little thing. 
So I commend the English on their insistence on people sitting in front of them. And I'm listening, it, it really wouldn't occur to him that that's where he should be sitting. I mean, you know, there's a very nice seat. He used to dive in, in, in Yerushalayim, in the Yeshiva, some places in his neighborhood. His neighborhood, he was, uh, I don't know, nothing special. And he, he sat wherever there was, a, there was a corner. It was a good place to sit. It's a sneeze of halichot. A sneeze that means I have, I, have, I have something to say. I have a shir to give. I'll give the shir. And I think Rabbi Nussi knew and accepted and wasn't even upset about the fact that very often in the room he knew more than anybody else that we should be the shir. Because I never participated in it. And he knew the other Rashi Yeshiva. He knew the Rashi Yeshiva before Yeshiva was there. All Rashi Yeshiva. He spent power and the shoulders of the Muslim and uh, all that and therefore when they used to argue he used to say this is the this is not stubborn this is what I think is true and he no problems to argue with people who were considered to be very very famous but because Torah was real but if you don't have anything to say so there's no there's no reason to say um, something which related to one of the stories told here but let us say I was interested to hear the opposite uh, Ron said that uh, he came to him after the gesture and so he said uh, thank you and didn't uh, criticize anything he would say and correct what you said. So that's very interesting because he had to correcting everything. He used to have once a year in Yeshiva and on Hanukkah and Yishimei Iyun. He'd take off uh, a couple of hours and invite guests, talk about a topic, not a usual Yeshiva topic, a widely perspective of the time. He used to come to every single lecture, every single one. And he sat there with a the, with the pan. And he's writing the whole time. And I know what's coming. I'm saying, you know, how does he do that? There's this poor guy. He came and gave his speech. A bathroom, a lecturer, a professor. He gave his speech. He said some nice ideas. We listened. It's fine. He doesn't even have it taken apart line by line. The Buddhist thing gets him and says, you know, you said this thing. It's an interesting point. You know, it's contradicted by this. And this kind of that. He was given, he was given the respect. Yeah, his 70th birthday, that was 12 years ago. So in Yeshiva, we made a, a birthday party. And they asked myself and I with the boy, who were two people who knew him the longest, to speak about the story, all of the story, which was repeated many times, how when he was eight years old, he heard it from his father, his father. He was eight or nine years old. He used to come to go to sleep and turn off the lights. He had a flashlight, he would turn the flashlight under the covers to learn. So what the boy said, he used to learn the Shnaiz. So the person gets up and says, I tell you the truth, the story is true, but it wasn't the Shnaiz. I was going to turn and I tell the story, which I'm sure is true. I, 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 it's burned into my heart. The story I told before about by Elie Wiesel. Because he says, you know, it wasn't exactly the way Rabbi Vick told the story. He does correct me little things. I, I, don't, I don't accept it. He's wrong. I'm not. <laughs> but it was so important to, to correct everything that you said. It's amazing. And the Ahmad is like, you think everything that you said. That wasn't the guy. It wasn't because, oh, I might tell you it was a service. It was a service to the people. People had heard a story. There's a detail wrong. You know, who knows what you record later on? Uh, we all know how all of histories work. Uh, inadvertently, you can't help yourself making up things. And etc. 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 My final point. Was the man ideological? Was he a sweet person? No. Was he ideological? Yes. I said, Abel Hashem was his ideology. 
He was had a Tzioni ideology, he had a Kalmatov ideology, and very strong ideologies. One of ideologies important. So, for instance, learning Torah as an ideology, yes, it's very important. Because an ideology, you cut off the day at the beginning of the Chokosh, the day at the end of the Chokosh, there was a discussion in Shivas, there's a custom, unfortunate custom. In Israel, before elections, Shivas allowed the Talmudim to go and canvass. Get people out to elections because elections are Kodesh. You get one Masih, two Masih, so you can say for Shabbat HaRazel does not allow Talmudim or learning Torah to take off, to save Amisra by getting three more people to vote for their body. Love is not for the Shiva. That's ideology. Chesed was ideology. It's an article we wrote about the Hesed called Talat Chesed. Why did you do Chesed? Why you have to go to the army? Because, not because, because the one Torah without Chesed is not the one Torah. And therefore, we have to do everything we have to be to scream out these things. Where is there no Chesed? Chesed is by the allergy. So one is party politics. This is called a number of times to intervene. It didn't have to do with Mizrahi and because we identified with Mizrahi, but he wasn't. The ideology is Raman Hashem. The ideology that says, this is what we need, and therefore this is your role, I'm right, that is totally, totally divorced from his, from, from his understanding. I, the only ideology that counts is, the only ideology that counts is, the Haggadot Torah, Ula, and Ula Haradiyah. And finally, above everything else, it's so clear that anybody knew him. So you call myself the Shem Shemayim. Call myself the Shem Shemayim. This indeed, on a moral basis, is something which I recommend to everybody. The extent to which it was true of him is indeed extraordinary. The man had no material issue, no personal interest to distort what he was saying, even in the slides. I mentioned this once uh, last year in the statement, that there was once a time, more than once a time, when we would have pronouncements on public issues, Important public issues, uh, Israeli political issues, peace, war, etc., etc. And many of them disagreed. And uh, I remember once saying to myself, <coughs> he's wrong. Perhaps the other of them are right. So very fine issues, and it's very difficult to know himself. Let's say it's very, very difficult to know. And I said to myself then, and I say it now, I would rather be wrong with the Rukhinstein than be right with the other of and not because I'm a Chassid Shalom. So I'm not wondering before I didn't know Islamic advice. But because, I don't know the right answer, but I know that his answer was given without any, 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 any Nidiyoti Shalom and any personal interest in the Pasuk of Islam. That doesn't mean you have to be right. You have to be a Nabi to be perfectly right. But at least it meant that that answer was a pure answer. If we're wrong, could be wrong. I'd rather be wrong with him than be right with people who I don't trust 100% how they got to the decisions. I'll call the Shem Shemar. This is something which I would suggest and advise as an aspiration. Always try to say what I'm doing is the Shem Shemar. With the understanding of the Shem is a very wide answer. It can include many things. It doesn't include twiddling one's tongue. But it does include studying something. It does include working in this area, working in that area, if it's the Shem Shemar. And to try all the time to indeed purify ourselves, we should be back, back to Shem Shemayim and, and nothing else. I think that it doesn't require an immense effort. It simply requires a decision that a person, everyone can say that I dedicate myself to try to call my side of Shem Shemayim. Everything I do should be part of my brother's Hashem. 
So that you don't have to be an extraordinary Godel, like the Bible was. You don't have to struggle with immense difficulties. You simply have to say that this is my orientation. I'm here, and I want to do this. Occasionally you'll fail, because you have the others, and you may have done some of the other things But then we should understand that we're not doing occasional mitzvahs within our larger life, that our lives exist in order. To be a better Obed Hashem, Hashem Hashem should be the Kudash Al Yadengu Ba'olam Hazen. That's something which I think we can learn from Him, His greatness, each of us on our own level, and apply. And if we do that, the world will be indeed a much better world, and our own world will be a much better world for on behalf of everybody, I'd like to thank uh, Rafik for a very analytical uh, assessment of Ravaron's life and Ravaron's contribution and uh, for sharing with us those uh, very inspirational uh, ideas and thoughts and really a message how we can take uh, Ravaron's legacy a little bit uh, further with us. I just want to uh, add something to a story Rabbi Kandorovich uh, uh, shared with us about uh, you were obviously a braver man than I, always. And in terms of asking Rabbi Aaron for a uh, letter of uh, recommendation when you applied for a job, I didn't ask him to be a rabbi. <laughs> That's because uh, when I was looking for my first position, one of our Chavayim had uh, experienced a few weeks uh, previously. He asked Rabbi Aaron, he put Rabbi Aaron down as a reference. Rabbi Aaron called him up in whatever in the late English, wanted to see him. He said, certain institution has come to me. Uh, you put me down on the reference. I don't think you're up to the job. But do, you want, do you want me to tell them that, or should I just ignore their letter? <laughs> um, and that was, uh, that, that was a wonderful example of Ravara's uh, commitment to Emmet. Uh, to we tend to think that, you know, first of all, ask for a letter of recommendation, you know, we'll find something nice about them, uh, they'll, you know, uh, they'll work it out for themselves, whatever. They haven't got such a responsibility. Ravara's commitment to uh, truth there was, uh, you know, I'm happy to write and tell them that you're not up to the job. If that's what you want me to do, or I'll just uh, I'll just ignore the letter. That's, uh, and that's a very powerful message. That I didn't take that to me. That's, uh, <laughs> um, that's I take it wasn't you. That's an important message and lesson. Really, that commitment to what I must have to do that. So I'd like to thank uh, uh, Chief Rabbi in his absence uh, for uh, gracing this evening's event. Uh, Rajiv, for his uh, very uh, insightful uh, uh, comments this evening. Also, Rajiv Fulman, for his uh, inspiring uh, insights into Rajiv's uh, uh, It's not good. And so, Rajiv uh, Gandhi for his involvement as well. Thank you very much. You spoke about the movie. So, 25 years ago, Rajiv Fulman went to a movie with his wife. Was a mm-hmm. uh, and then happened two things. One thing we had uh, we sat together once, Korean analysis with Tova, and he, and we spoke about movies and this. And she said, before we got married, he promised us, he promised me that every week we we'll go to a movie. Well, I understand that he doesn't go with me, but at least that he remembered that he promised me. <laughs> so this she said. And then a student came to me in Shul Alec and asked me, how did the Rosh Hashimah go to a movie? How can it be? I didn't go to a movie once a year later. So I went to the Rosh and said, oh, look, this uh, student, I don't know, I asked him, I told him he, he wanted to know how is it that uh, the Rosh Hashimah goes to a movie. He said, okay, tell him to, to come to me. <laughs> I went to him and told him, uh, 
Show suspended. Eu vou ter uma vez assim, a todo mundo cuidado, you won't come to the lab. Eu disse, ok, I'll go to him. He went to him, and he gave him the all, and then he soon came to me, he wanted to kill me. He told me, now this is the told me. He asked me, everything we have in our Yadut, in the books, why do we need to go to the movie? So he told me, the movie gives us the questions shows us all the problems in the world. The answers you get in our books. Was very interesting to very interesting to see something like this. And I have to tell you one thing that when I'm speaking here, it also tends to be interesting. Not because I speak on him, but because when I was in Shuvudalet, I was sure I'm going to be a doctor. And he called me to his room and spoke for quarter of an hour how important it is to be a doctor. And after quarter of an hour he said, Avant. Okay, you have to stay with you. Thanks, please. Go ahead, thank you.